Hello everyone, welcome to episode 4. So I would have had this uploaded on Tuesday, and it is now Thursday at 11.30pm, but my computer did some kind of crazy update thing, so when I went to record this, it had deleted the document in which contained um, hours and hours of research. So, I love that. absolutely love technology. Anyways, I just want to start this case off with a disclaimer that this is an extremely brutal case. Uh, we're going to be talking about sexual assault and some different mental illnesses. And just want to go ahead and throw that out there for those of you who may find stuff like that triggering. There's actually a lot of details that I'm going to be leaving out because I want to maintain respect for the victims um, and cover this case in a way that's not degrading them any further. I think it's really important for everyone to remember when you're listening to these cases, when you're researching them, that these were real people. These aren't just stories. This isn't fiction. Uh, this is real life. These people were real. They had families. They felt real pain. So anyways, today we're going to be talking about the toolbox killers, as they were called. Um, and when I titled this A Match Made in Hell, that is not dramatic. We're going to be discussing Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, who were two very sick and twisted individuals who were also extremely mentally ill. Another disclaimer, when I discuss these mental illnesses, I want everyone to understand that mental illness affects everybody differently. It manifests in everybody different. And just because someone has a mental illness similar to this does not mean that they're going to go out and commit a bunch of murders. That is not what I'm asserting at all. Anyways, enough of me babbling. Let's get to the facts. So as I said before, the toolbox killers were Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. They were called this because they were known for riding around in the big scary van with a toolbox full of murder weapons, including a sledgehammer, an ice pick, wire coat hangers, and vice grip pliers. So just to give a little bit of background on our murderers here, Lawrence Bittaker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1940. He was an unwanted child who was adopted, and he spent most of his childhood in a pretty chaotic situation. He was in and out of trouble. He was first arrested at the age of 12 for shoplifting, and he obtained a pretty, um, you know, pretty big criminal record for someone being so young. And then he spent a lot of time in a juvenile detention center until he was released at the age of 18. When he was released, he came back to find that his adoptive parents had up and moved, basically disowned him, and he didn't even know where they went. Lawrence was diagnosed with severe antisocial personality disorder. Individuals with this disorder can often be described as impulsive, deceitful, showing a lack of remorse, and irresponsible. Roy Norris was conceived out of wedlock. His parents got married shortly after they found out his mother was pregnant, but it was pretty obvious that he was an unwanted child and they had a very unhappy marriage. His mother was a drug addict and he spent a lot of time um, in different foster homes. He even said he suffered severe abuse in these foster homes, including sexual abuse. In one instance, Roy made inappropriate sexual advances towards a family member and when his father found out, he pretty much disowned him. Shortly after, Roy attempted to commit suicide, which obviously was unsuccessful. He joined the Navy shortly after, and during his time in the Navy, he was accused of sexually assaulting multiple women 
and was discharged as a result of this. Roy was diagnosed with severe schizoid personality disorder, which can be described as a personality disorder where one lacks interest in having social relationships with others. They can be emotionally cold and detached, and also they're apathetic. Roy and Lawrence met in prison in 1977. They formed a friendship and soon began to share their sick ideas and plans of raping and torturing young women between the ages of 12 and 18 and they vowed that when they were released from prison, they would act out these fantasies together. Lawrence was released from prison in October of 1978, and he began working as a mechanic. He was living out of a motel and became very close friends with those around him. He was seen as a kind and generous person. He often gave money to the homeless, and he befriended a lot of local teenagers by offering them alcohol, marijuana, and a free place to party at his motel room. Three months later, in January 1979, Roy was released from prison and he moved in with his mother in Redondo Beach, California, where he worked as an electrician. In February of 1979, the pair met up at a hotel room where they would discuss how to make their plans of raping and torturing young women come to life. They decided that owning a van would make it easier for them to carry out these plans, so they purchased a large van and nicknamed it Murder Mac. The van had no windows and a large sliding passenger door. In June of 1979, the pair decided to begin what they would call their practice runs. They had discovered a remote fire road behind a locked gate, and Roy cut off the lock and replaced it with his own, so they were the only ones who really had access to it and knew about it. They began picking up a bunch of female hitchhikers by offering them marijuana, offering them alcohol, you know, the whole party vibe, and they were able to successfully have about 20 women come into their van. They didn't actually harm any of these women. This was just a way for them to practice their tactics of how they would, you know, get the women, get the girls to come into the van. The pair's first known murder took place on June 24, 1979, and the victim was 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. They saw her when she was leaving a church meeting and tried to lure her into the van with alcohol and marijuana. Lucinda declined their offer, so they drove a little bit ahead of her and parked in a driveway. They waited for her to walk by, and Norris opened the passenger door and drug her into the van. According to the accounts of both men, Lucinda remained composed and calm the entire time. Roy and Lawrence drove Lucinda to the fire road. They took turns sexually assaulting her, in which case she pleaded, if you're going to kill me, just allow me to pray first. They declined this, and Roy was the first one to try to kill her. He began attempting to strangle her with a wire coat hanger, which was not successful. When he saw the look in her eyes, he became physically ill and had to leave the van. So Lawrence came and finished the job with the wire coat hanger and the use of vice grip pliers. The men then wrapped her body up in a shower curtain and threw her over a cliff. Lawrence assured Roy not to worry that animals would eat her body so that she could never be found. 1979, the pair discovered their second victim, Andrea Joy Hall, as she was hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. Andrea had actually gotten to another vehicle first. Roy and Norris wanted her for their victim, so they followed the vehicle until it stopped, at which point Roy moved to the back of the van so that they could trick Hall into thinking that Lawrence was all alone. Lawrence pulled over and offered Andrea a drink from the cooler, and when she went to receive the drink from the back, Roy grabbed her and pulled her into the van. After putting up quite a fight, Roy was finally able to subdue her 
He gagged her and taped her wrists and her ankles. The pair then took her to the secluded fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains, the same place where they had taken Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. Lawrence and Roy took turns sexually assaulting her as they did with their last victim. Lawrence forced Andrea to pose for Polaroid photos and began a sick game with her. He told her to give him as many reasons as she could think of as to why she should live, but before she could even give any reasons, he killed her. From Roy's account of Andrea Hall's murder, he says he was actually not present when she was murdered. He went to the store to get some alcohol, and when he came back, Lawrence had murdered her and threw her body over the same cliff. On September 3rd of 1979, Lawrence and Roy came across two girls who were hitchhiking the Pacific Coast Highway. They were Jackie Gilliam and Jacqueline Lamp. The girls were 13 and 15 years old. The pair offered the girls a ride, which they accepted, and inside the van they were offered marijuana, which they also accepted. Shortly after, the girls realized the van was actually not going the right way, and they began to protest. Roy and Lawrence tried to assure them that it was going to be okay. However, they were not deceived. Jacqueline actually attempted to jump out of the sliding door, and Roy hit her on the back of the head with a bag full of lead weights. The men then tied up and gagged Jackie. When Jacqueline woke up, she again attempted to escape the van, but Roy twisted her arm behind her back and dragged her back into the van, so she actually did get out of the van. Lawrence was afraid that the girl's struggle would bring attention to them and leave potential witnesses, so he had to stop and get out and help Roy, and he knocked out Jacqueline by punching her directly in the face. The girls were taken to the fire road and held captive for almost two full days. During this time, the girls underwent unimaginable torture. Jacqueline was forced to pose for Polaroid photos, and Jackie was sexually assaulted multiple times. Jackie Gilliam was murdered first, and Jacqueline Lamp continued to put up quite the fight. I don't want to go into too much detail about how she was actually murdered. All I can say is she was extremely tough for being so young, and it's pretty clear that she did not want to die. In Roy Norris's account of the murders, he says that he told Lawrence that they should make murdering Jackie Gilliam as quick and painless as possible because of how she had, you know, complied with them. And Lawrence, being the super sick individual he was, he said no, they only die once and he wanted to enjoy it. The pair's last known murder occurred on October 31st of 1979 and the victim was Shirley Lynette Ledford, who was 16 years old. Shirley was hitchhiking home from a Halloween party when Roy and Lawrence offered her a ride. It's rumored that Shirley accepted the ride from them because she recognized Lawrence from the restaurant where she worked at, and it's even been said that he asked her out on multiple occasions, and she declined, which made him feel embarrassed. And when you hear about the brutal details of this murder, it almost seems like it was very personal to him. It's almost impossible to put into words how horrible and terrifying the things that they did to this girl are, and I'm going to leave out a lot of details. If you want to look it up yourself, that's fine, but I'll tell you, once you read about it, you won't go back. Like, I had nightmares about this, I swear to God. So, Roy and Lawrence didn't take Shirley Ledford to the fire road as they had their victims before. They just took places driving and the other one would, you know, just casually rape and torture her in the back. 
and they blared extremely loud rock music so that they couldn't be heard while they were driving around. So the men obviously sexually assaulted her. They beat her with a sledgehammer and they played an insanely sick game with her where they made her scream just as loud as she possibly could. And all of this was captured in a 17 minute video. The transcript for the video can be found online, but I will go ahead and warn you, it is awful. It, it was so hard to read. It just, it'll make you sick to your stomach. Um, the things that they did to this girl, it doesn't make sense how a human being could be treated so badly. It makes no sense at all. At one point, Roy broke her elbow with a sledgehammer and then continued to strike the same broken elbow 25 times with the sledgehammer. The pair mocked her and just completely dehumanized her, and this lasted for almost two hours before she was finally murdered, at which point she was begging for them to kill her. Lawrence Bittaker was so proud of what the two men had done that he wanted to discard her body on a random person's lawn. That way the case would receive media attention when her body was found. On November 1st, a woman was jogging in Sunland, California when she came across the naked body of Shirley Lynette Ledford. However, at this point, the police didn't have any suspects. Roy and Lawrence weren't even on their radar for this crime um, because they had no idea of what they had been doing. So they didn't actually show up on police radar until Roy Norris was meeting with a friend, Joseph Jackson, who was a mutual acquaintance uh, of Roy and Lawrence. And Roy confided in Jackson and told him several detailed accounts of how they had uh, raped and murdered and tortured these young women. Well, Joseph Jackson had two daughters that were 13 and 17 years old, so he was afraid for their safety, and he decided he was going to consult with his lawyer about what to do with this information. His lawyer advised him to go to law enforcement with this information, and that's exactly what he did. Roy had told Jackson about an incident where they maced a girl in the face, took her into the van, raped her, and then they had let her go, and the police were able to match this account up with a report that was previously filed earlier in the year, and the victim was named Robin Robeck. Detective Paul Bynum of the Redondo Beach Police Department arranged for mugshots of Roy and Lawrence to be shown to Robin Rebecca in a photo lineup, and she identified both of them as her kidnappers. The police put Roy Norris under surveillance until they could find a charge to bring him in on. They ended up bringing him in on a charge for distributing marijuana and for violating parole. They brought in Lawrence Bittaker on similar drug charges and violating parole as well. Upon searching the homes of the men and the van, the police found the weapons. They found jewelry that was taken as souvenirs from several victims. They also found the tape of Shirley Lynette Ledford, and they found over 500 Polaroid photos of different women. They had also found seven bottles of an acidic substance that they believed the men were planning to use in their next attacks. All I can say is thank God they were caught before they could impose that kind of torture on somebody. Stephen Kay, who was the deputy district attorney at the time, said this is the worst case he had ever been a part of, and he was a part of the Manson case, just to put it in perspective. 
When Roy Norris was brought in for questioning, he chose to waive his Miranda rights, and he began confessing as soon as the police presented him with even the smallest amount of evidence against him. Nineteen of the women in the Polaroid photos found were identified as missing persons, and they were believed to have possibly been victims of Roy and Lawrence, although no additional evidence was found to support this. The bodies of the first two victims, Lucinda Lynn Schaefer and Andrea Joy Hall, were actually never found. On March 18, 1980, Roy Norris pleaded guilty to four counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. Roy was sentenced to 45 years to life in prison with eligibility for parole in 2010. However, in 2009, he did not show up for his parole hearing, and again in 2019 when he was eligible, he was denied. Roy Norris died in prison on February 24, 2020. Lawrence Bittaker refused to enter a plea, and a plea of not guilty was entered on his behalf. During his trial, the 17-minute audio from the video of Shirley Lynette Ledford's torture was played, and Stephen Kay announced to the courtroom, if you do not know what hell is like, you're about to find out. Many people in the courtroom wept aloud, including Stephen Kay himself. Throughout the entire three-week trial, Lawrence Bittaker showed no emotion or he was smiling the whole entire time. Lawrence Bittaker was found guilty on all charges that were presented against him, and he was sentenced to death. He never showed one ounce of remorse for his crimes, and he's even stated he only felt bad that he was caught. Lawrence Bittaker died on death row at the age of 79 on December 13, 2019. So I guess if anything, we can rejoice in the fact that both of these horrible creatures are dead, and they're no longer taking up any of our oxygen in the world. These two were so sick and arrogant and disgusting, and I don't think justice could ever be done. Whether, you know, they spent the rest of their life in prison or not, there's no justice when it comes to taking away someone's loved one, taking away a young life, and all of the girls that they murdered were so young, and they had their whole lives ahead of them. So I think this case could lead to a good discussion on why serial killers are the way that they are. Is it mental illness? Is it their childhood? I mean, we have these two individuals here that are obviously mentally ill. They were abandoned as children. They were felt unloved. But, you know, what was the breaking point? What was the final straw that made them think that they were so powerful that they could go play God and end people's lives? So I will end with that. I think I've left everyone with some good thinking points. Um, and I think this was a very interesting and sad case. So thank you again for listening.